0: Father, we are so grateful for uh, this Easter holiday and what it means to us, Lord, the, the fact that you sent your only begotten son to die on a cross for our sins, and and on the third day, he raised himself from the dead, Lord, and, and uh, uh, that resurrected life that was in him, Lord, is the life that you give us. Uh, uh, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ. We just thank you for what an exciting uh, day Easter is and Good Friday. And, uh, Lord, uh, as we look at this text in, in Genesis chapter 15, Lord, we can, we can see way back then, long before there was a Good Friday or a Resurrection Sunday, Lord, that, that uh, you uh, made a way for us to, to know you and uh that 's through faith, now, the same faith that saved Abraham is the faith that saves us and lord we 'll see how critical faith is to our salvation today as we look at this text it 's critical to uh, for all our walk with you we 're not only to are we saved by faith we 're to walk by faith so So teach us the lessons you would like to teach us today, this very important subject of faith. Uh, uh, as we look at this this study in Genesis 15. Lord, again, we just thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his blood. Uh, we ask for your anointing on this message. We ask that in Christ's name, amen. I'm going to begin today uh, by playing a short video uh, by Paul Harvey. So we're going to start with that. It
1: starts with a story about a Boston preacher named S.D. Gordon. Dr. Gordon placed a beat-up, bent, rusted old birdcage beside his pulpit and told the story about that birdcage. He said an unkempt, unwashed little lad, about age 10, was coming up the alley swinging this old caved-in birdcage with several tiny birds shivering on the floor of it the compassionate dr gordon asked where did the boy get the birds the lad said he had trapped them what was he going to do with them the preacher asked the boy said i'm going to play with them have fun with them the preacher said sooner or later lad you're going to get tired of that and then what are you going to do with them and the lad said well i i have some cats at home they like birds i'll feed them to my cats Dr. Gordon said, Son, how much do you want for the birds? The boy, surprised, hesitated. And then he said, Mister, you don't want to buy these birds. They're just plain old field birds. They can't even sing, and they're ugly. Just tell me, $2? To his surprise, Dr. Gordon reached into his pocket and handed the lad $2 bills and the preacher took the cage and the boy in a wink had disappeared down the alley. In a sheltered crevice between buildings, Dr. Gordon opened the door of the cage and tapping on the rusty exterior, he encouraged the little birds one at a time to find their way out through the narrow door and fly away. Thus having accounted for the empty cage beside his pulpit, The preacher went on to tell what seemed at first like a separate story about how once upon a time Jesus and the devil had engaged in a negotiation. Satan had boasted how he had baited a trap. In Eden's garden, he had baited a trap, and he'd caught himself a world full of people. What are you going to do with all those people in your cage? Jesus wanted to know. The devil said, I'm going to play with them, tease them, Make them marry and divorce and fight and kill one another. I'm going to teach them to throw bombs at each other. I'm going to have fun with them. And Jesus had said, you can't have fun with them forever. When you get tired of playing, then what are you going to do with them? And Satan had said, damn them, they're no good anyway. Damn them, kill them. Jesus said, how much do you want for them? satan said you can't be serious if i sell them to you they'll just spit on you they'll hate you they'll hit you and hammer nails into you they're no good jesus said how much satan said all of your tears and all of your blood that is the price and jesus took the cage and paid the price and opened the door.
0: Paul Harvey certainly was the master of telling stories. And that's a very touching story, but it doesn't tell the whole truth of Easter. It's missing uh, some very important components. First of all, you've got to ask the question, that video doesn't answer the question. When the price was paid uh, for those birds and they were set free, or when the Christ was paid to the devil and we were set free. What were we set free for? Uh, To go on living our lives just as we lived our lives before? Well, that works for birds, but it doesn't work for people. No, Christ died for us and he set us free so that we could be sanctified and made holy so that we could be the kind of people that could live with him forever in heaven. And love him. There's something else missing in that story, and and uh, uh, that's the fact that the story fails to say anything about faith and the necessity of faith in salvation. Uh, because there is no Easter without faith. That's the key to salvation, and that brings us to the lesson that we're going to be in today in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, as we look at this time when when Abraham uh, got saved, that we'll actually see the, the moment that he got saved. And how did he get saved? He believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed in the Lord, and he was saved a long time before there was any Good Friday, a long time before there was any Resurrection Sunday. And so we want to look at his story today and see faith's role in uh, in making Easter the greatest story ever told. And also learn why uh, there is no Easter without faith. So go with me to Genesis chapter 15, and we'll begin there in verse number 1. Genesis 15, verse number 1. And let's pick up there. Uh, as we begin our message today. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And so he begins, verse 1, by saying, After these things. Now what things is Moses talking about right here in this story of Abraham? He's talking about uh, the things that happened to Abraham in the last chapter. You remember Lot was captured by these this coalition of five kings and he was taken captive, him and his family and all the other uh, people who lived in the Jordanian plain and all of their goods were taken. And Abram chased after him all the way past Dan, all the way into Syria, and he defeated this army of four kings and, and he rescued Lot. And on his way back to the Jordanian plain, uh, he let all those people go, and he ran into this character, this very mysterious character in the Bible named Melchizedek, who we discovered last week is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So he had an encounter with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then, no doubt, Melchizedek left, and the King of Salem came. He had the encounter with the King of Salem. And then, after that encounter, Abram leaves, and he goes back to he- Hebron. And, and, and you got to put yourself in his shoes for a minute. Here he is. He's had maybe the most exciting experiences in, in his entire life. He's met the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then now he's back in Hebron. And uh, he still uh, hasn't received any of these promises that God had given to him. He still was a stranger in the land. He didn't know where he was going to go next. Uh, he didn't have a son And uh, therefore, he wasn't going to be a great nation. It didn't look like he was going to become a great nation. And he wasn't going to be a blessing to all the other nations like God had promised him. So he's got to be discouraged at this point. Anytime, and that's, you know, that's a lesson for us. Anytime you come off a great spiritual high, there's probably a valley waiting for you. And that's where Abram was at this point, even though he was up on this high peak uh, at the at the city of Hebron, he was still down in a spiritual valley. He was discouraged. But after these things, look back to the text here, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying. Now, that's interesting to me that the word of the Lord comes in a vision. First of all, this isn't a dream. It's a vision. What's a vision? A vision is when you see some supernatural sight that only you see, nobody else sees. And so the Lord, The word of the Lord comes to into, into Abram in a vision. Now I've got to ask the question, how did the word of the Lord come to Abram in a vision? I mean, did Abram see a bunch of letters in the sky and therefore he saw the word of the Lord? No, I believe what Abraham saw was none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ again, but this time in all his glory. What he saw was the pre-incarnate word. He saw the Logos, uh, the Logos himself, uh, in, in, in all his glory. Uh, just like John saw the Logos in all his glory when, glory when he was on the island of Patmos. You remember when John was on, on the island of Patmos and he had walked with Jesus for three years. But he sees the Lord in all of his glory and when he sees the Lord in all of his glory, what does he do? He falls on his face as if he was dead. And I think the same thing happens to Abram, that Abram sees the Lord in all of his glory and he's frightened. And uh, so uh, he, he had seen the Lord before when he saw Melchizedek. He saw him in a physical body, but he hadn't seen him in all his glory. And so Jesus Christ in his glory is a much more imposing figure than he is just in the flesh. And so he sees him here, and I have no doubt, just like John when he was on Patmos, he's afraid. And he sees him, and and what does Jesus say? He says the same thing he said to John. He says, do not be afraid. In other words, Abram, I'm not here to harm you. Uh, I'm here uh, to do you good. Uh, On the contrary, and look what he says next. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. You, You catch that now. What's it begin with? Two words there. What are those first two words? I am. So who who was he telling him he was? He's the great I am. You remember when Moses encountered the Lord at the burning bush, and that burning bush that didn't burn up was the very glory of God. He sees the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, and and the Lord tells him, hey, you're on holy ground. And Moses says, what's your name? And he says, I'll tell you my name. He says, my name is I am. I am who I am, Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how you translate that Hebrew. See, you can translate it different ways, Brandon. (laughs) Yahweh or or Jehovah. Uh, So so he sees him. He sees, Abram sees the Lord. he, He sees... The great I am. When Moses saw the great I am, that wasn't the first time we hear about the great I am. Abram actually saw the great I am. I'm sure Adam saw the great I am. Noah probably saw the great I am. And here's Abraham now seeing the great I am. And 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 what is he telling? He says, "I am." Look at the text there. He says, "I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward." So we learn something about the great I am right here. He is our shield and he's our exceedingly great reward. You can tack that on to those seven great I am's you have in the gospel. You remember in the gospels, remember those great I am's. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. And those are seven I Am's, and then in Revelation, he puts the icing on the cake. He says, I am uh, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last, Almighty God. That's who the great I Am is. So here is Abram, some 2,000 years before there's even a New Testament, uh, getting a great I Am promise from the same God as the God in the New Testament none other than Jesus Christ. And what's that promise? He says, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. And the promise is given to him by the great I am. Not the great I was, not the great I will be, but the great I am. Now, that tells me something. That's who he is. That's who he always is. So if he was Abraham's... Uh, Shield and exceedingly great reward, then he is also our shield and exceedingly great reward. Now, first of all, he says, I'm your shield. He says, I'm your shield. What does he mean by I'm your shield? What he's saying is, Abraham, I'm going to protect you wherever you go. And those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. We saw that in Genesis uh, uh, chapter 12, verse number 2. And... uh, what that means is that he is our hedge of protection. He's always been our hedge of protection. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus is your hedge of protection. He was your hedge of protection. He is your hedge of protection. He's always going to be your hedge of protection. Now, Abraham doesn't get saved here till we get down to verse number 6. But remember, when when Abraham went down to Egypt... He got himself in a real mess, didn't he? But God was there protecting him, even though he was outside the will of God. God was still his hedge of protection. God's going to be his hedge of protection uh, in, 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 when we come, as we're in chapter 15, and later on when Abraham messes up again, God's still going to be his hedge of protection. Look at Lot. Lot was a believer. We, we're told in Second Peter that Lot, that Lot is called righteous Lot, that he was a righteous man. I don't know where the Bible gets that, but I'm going to believe God that he was a righteous man. But where was he living at this point? He was living down in Sodom. And he would have died when those four kings took him away if, if God hadn't intervened and sent Abra Abram up there to rescue him. Because, why did God do that? Because God was Lot's hedge of protection. And he's your hedge of protection and he's my hedge of protection. But hey, that's not the most important thing he tells them. Abraham here, the most important thing he tells him here is that I am your exceedingly great reward. You know what that means? That means that knowing God is the greatest reward a human being can receive. That is your greatest reward to know God. I mean, a lot of us don't see it that way. But that's really our greatest reward. I mean, think about it. If he's all the things he says I am, then he's certainly our greatest reward. I mean, he was Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. He is our righteousness. He is, uh, he is uh, the king of peace. He, he told Abraham, in, his name was given to us in the last chapter, as the king of peace. So he's our peace. But he's also all of these seven great I AMs. He's the way, the truth, the life, the door, the light of the world, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the resurrection and, the, and uh, the resurrection and the life and the true vine. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last, the Almighty God, and he's ours if we trust and believe in him. I mean, there's no greater reward than that, because in Christ. That's where you have true joy and you have true peace, because of who he is. He's all of those things. If you truly believe that, he's all of those things for you, and he's all of those things for me. Now, when when the Lord tells him that, again, looking at this verse, he says, says, I am uh, your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Now, if Abraham had thought about that and all those promises that the Lord had given him, I mean, he would have said, man, I mean, what was the proper response? It would have been to say, Lord, that's great. You're all I need. I mean, you're, I mean, if, you're, if, if I, you're mine and I'm yours, you're all I could ever want or need. Now, sometimes we say that, but we don't really mean that. And I imagine if you had asked Abraham, is the Lord your exceedingly great reward? Oh, yeah, for sure. But that's really not what he wanted most in life at that point. Abraham was a lot like us. He wanted the things God could give more than he wanted the God that gives the things. And that's where he was at at this point because he's pretty immature in his relationship with the Lord. And so so there was something he wanted more than God. And he wanted much more than God, and God had promised it to him. And, and, And so he was looking for that thing that God was going to give more than he was looking at God at this point. And, and what, he, what did he want more than anything else in the world? He wanted a son. And God, through these promises, had promised him a son. Now, Abraham's got a lot of nerve. I've got to tell you, listen, look at the next two verses here. Listen to what he says to the Lord. I mean, this is, this is God Almighty in all his glory. He, Abraham's gotten up off his feet. The Lord's told him, I'm your exceedingly great reward. And Abraham says, that's great, Lord. But Abraham said, there's a big but right there. But Abraham said, that's great, Lord. I'm glad you're my God, I'm glad you're my shield, I'm glad you're my exceedingly great reward, but Lord God, what will you give me? Does that sound familiar? I mean, mean, do we go to our closets when we pray to the Lord and we say, say, Lord, I am so glad you're my exceedingly great reward. That's what I want more than anything else is to have you, to have a relationship with you. Now, you know what we do when we go to our closet? God, I'm really glad you're my exceedingly great reward. I'm really glad you died for me on the cross. I'm really glad you were resurrected from the dead. But give me. Give me what I want. Give me what I want. Shame on us. Abraham should have been ashamed of himself at at this point because because the Lord had already told him, I'm going to give you a son. He should have just trusted him. And he'd believe in the Lord at this point. Not at this point. He will in a minute. But he's close to believing the Lord. But he wants a son more than anything else in the world. And so he says, what will you give me seeing I go childless? And my only heir, the heir of my house, is Eliezer of Damascus. I mean, he's not even my kin. Then Abraham said, look. I mean, look at me. Look at, look at my gray hair. Look how old I'm getting. Look how old my wife's getting. And, and if you're, Lord, if you don't hurry up. There's no way I'm going to be able to have a son. And I really want a son more than anything else in the world. I mean, you, you, Lord, as great as you are, you're my shield and you're my exceedingly great reward. You have given me no offspring. I'm back in verse number three. Indeed, one who is my servant, born in my house, is my heir. In other words, you know, I've waited all these years now, and yet... There's no sign of me having a son. I'm getting old. My wife's getting old. And it's becoming more and more impossible for me to have a son. And, and and if I die and if Sarah dies, my that my heir is none other than a servant, a slave in my house, Eliezer. And so all the promises that you made to me are going to go right out the window. And how does the Lord respond? I'm done with you, Abraham. I mean, you greedy little thing! I, I told you. I, I mean, you saw me in my glory, and I'm telling you, I'm your exceedingly great reward. I can do so many things for you, and 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 you're still harping on this this uh, desire you have for a child, and 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 the Lord could have just rolled him off at that point. But look at the word that the Lord gives to Abraham. He's going to renew the promises that He's already made to him. I'm, I'm reading now in verse number four, and behold. The word of the Lord, the Logos of the Lord, came to him saying, This one, Eliezer, shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. In other words, you and Sarah are going to have a son, and, uh, and, and he's going to be your heir. And all the promises that i made to you are going to be fulfilled. Your name is going to be great. Uh, your, a great nation is going to come forth from your loins. Uh, if through you, in you, is, a, is in your seed, is one who will come, who will bless all the nations of the world, and your descendants will be more than you can possibly even count. Remember what he said in Genesis, what the Lord told Abram in Genesis chapter 13, verse 6, he says, I'm going to make your descendants as the dust of the earth. But now the Lord get, is going to give him a much more vivid picture. Look at verse number 5. He says, then he brought him outside and said, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. I mean, you go out there, you look at the stars and try to count them, and and you're that's how many descendants you're going to have. You know, one of the sad things about living in the age in which we live is that there's so much light pollution at night that you really can't see the stars. I remember the last time I went to the Grand Canyon, and I'd been there a few times, but that last time I went to the Grand Canyon, the thing that amazed me the most when I was at the Grand Canyon wasn't the Grand Canyon itself. It was the stars that you could see. We were camping at night, and you could lay there on your sleeping bag and look up at those stars, and there were more stars than you could possibly count. Now, they say you can count them. There's 10,000. They say the naked eye can see. But if you take a, a pair of binoculars and you look at the stars on a night like that, you're going to see millions of stars. And if you take a telescope and you look, uh, just, a, just a telescope you can buy at Walmarts, and you look into the sky on a night like that, you're going to see billions of stars. Scientists tell us that they're, are at least 200 billion galaxies, and most of those galaxies have over a trillion stars larger than our sun. Now, you stop and think about that. You can't count those stars. They don't know how many stars out there. Actually, I think the number is infinite, and that's what God was saying to Abraham. He was saying to him, he, 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 I mean, just, just, just get a picture of this. Then he brought him outside, He takes Abraham outside, and uh, he takes him to a spot where he can see all the stars. And and they're glowing so much, it's as if he can reach out and touch those stars. And he says, Abraham, see if you can count those stars. That's how many children are going to come forth from your loins. How many descendants are going to come forth from your loins? More than you can count. An innumerable amount of people, an infinite amount of people. Now, that's a pretty unbelievable thing to believe. Especially if you don't have one kid yet. And Abraham didn't have one kid yet. And God's telling him, you're going to have more kids than the stars in the sky. But here's, look at what happens to Abraham here. He said, in verse number 6, one of the most important verses in the Bible. It's says every bit as important as John 3.16. Right here. Way back in... Uh, Genesis chapter 15, you get John 3.16. You get it right here. You get it in a primitive form, but you get John 3.16 right here, and it's critical. He says, and he believed in the Lord. Paul's going to say it a little bit differently, and I think Paul says it differently, so there's no misunderstanding here. He believed the Lord. He believed the word of the Lord. He didn't just, I mean, he he didn't have any problem believing in the Lord. I mean, he's got a vision of the Lord standing right before him. It's the Lord who's speaking to him. So he has no problem believing that there's a Lord. The problem is believing the promises of the Lord. And so when it says here he believed in the Lord, it means he believed the promises of the Lord. At this point, he drew a line in the sand. And he says, Lord, I believe your word. I believe every word of your word. Now, he's going to not believe in the next chapter, but he's going to believe here. His faith's going to falter. We'll we'll see that later on. But he believed the Lord, and what does the Lord give him in return? He gives him something of more benefit than the benefits of all those promises God had already given him. Listen to what he gives him. He said he believed in the Lord, and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. What kind of righteousness? Perfect righteousness. The righteousness of God. The righteousness good enough for heaven. The righteousness good enough for eternal life. In other words, Abraham, you're going to live forever. And and this is the point that Abraham is is saved. Now, whether or not he received the Holy Spirit, I believe he did. Because Paul says if you receive the Holy Spirit, uh, I mean, if you believe, having believed, you receive the Holy Spirit. I believe Abraham received the Holy Spirit at this point. Uh, Even though there was no Pentecost, he didn't receive it in the context of the church. But I believe he received the Holy Spirit at this point. He was a born-again believer, just like David received the Spirit and became a born-again believer. Uh, So he received that perfect, righteousness of God. Now what you have right here is the New Testament gospel. I mean, you've got the great promise promises of Easter given to a man living on the earth some 2000 years before there was a cross, before there was the first Easter Sunday. Abraham knew nothing at this point about Good Friday. He knew nothing at this point about Resurrection Sunday. But he had seen God in all his glory, and he had heard the word of God, and he believed. When he saw God in all his glory, no doubt he saw how, un, how holy God was and how unholy he was. And he said to himself, man, if I ever live with God, God's going to have to do something to fix my unholiness. But God's going God's to do that for him some 2,000 years later. But the fact that Abraham believes at this point, he's saved at this point. Now, he actually gets a picture. I'm going to throw that thing if it does. I don't like he's coming up. He actually gets a picture of the cross when he takes his own son up on Mount Moriah in chapter 22. And we'll look at that. I mean, he gets a beautiful picture of the cross and really the resurrection. And God's going to tell him up on Mount Moriah on this mount, I will provide Jehovah Jireh, I will provide a sacrifice for the sins of the world. I'm going to pay for your sins on that mount. But he doesn't understand that now. He doesn't understand that at all. But watch this very carefully. He believes in the Word of God. And if you believe in the Word of God, Easter's going to come at some point. But but whether you're before Easter or at Easter or after Easter, you've got to believe the Word of God. You've got to believe in the Lord without faith there is no Easter. I don't care on what side of the the timetable you are as far as Easter is concerned. Without faith, there is no Easter. Now, that's exactly why Paul uses Abraham over and over again as an example of Christian faith. How we're saved is the same way Abraham was saved. Let me give you one example. Let's look at one example. Go with me over to Romans the book of Romans. It's a big book, past the Gospels, you'll find it. Romans chapter number four. This is just one example he uses. And listen to what listen to beginning in verse number one, listen to what Paul says. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham the Father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has nothing, he has something to boast about. In other words, if he if he did something good to earn his salvation, he can boast before God. Uh, but but he didn't so he has nothing to boast about before god for what does the scripture say abraham believed god you see paul says it a little bit differently he doesn't just believe in god more importantly he believed in the word of god and it was accounted to him for righteousness he was saved at that point he was made righteous you are only going to get to heaven if you're absolutely perfectly righteous you've got to be perfectly righteous and friends I don't care how hard you try, you cannot make yourself righteous. That's where legalism causes all sorts of troubles. You start trying to add to this gospel and you're going to get yourself in trouble. You cannot save yourself, you can't sanctify yourself, you can't glorify yourself. You Righteousness, the righteousness you have that gets you into heaven is a gift Of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we better get that in our heads. There are a lot of religions out there that are adding things to the righteousness that's given to us by God. And if you try to add to that, Paul tells us in Galatians, you nullify the work of the cross in your behalf. You trample on the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's a dangerous thing to do. Now, verse number four, now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. I mean, God would have owed Abraham. I mean, Abraham was righteous because he worked for his righteousness. That would be one thing. But you can't work enough. You can't be good enough to have the righteousness of God, to be fit for heaven. There's no way. Now, here's the solution. And this is, I mean, Abraham didn't understand all this theology like Paul did but he did what is required, and he was saved. Here's the solution, verse number 5. But to him who does not work for their salvation, or for their sanctification, or for their glorification. In other words, you trust by faith in the cross. You trust Jesus to save you. You trust Jesus to sanctify you. You trust Jesus to glorify you. But to him who does not work but believes in him who justified the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That's how you're saved. You're saved the same way Abraham was saved. Does that mean I can live unrighteously all I want to? You can, but you're not going to want to anymore if you're saved. If you're still living an unrighteous life, I've got to question if you're saved. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about pretenders. We're pretenders. What we're doing, what we're trying to do is act out who God has made us. And we can't do it to its fullest, but, but we can at least try. And we try because we love the Lord and because, hey, we've got a new nature that wants us to be good. We still have our flesh, and we're never going to fully be righteous on this earth in our flesh. Our flesh can't be redeemed. And so the flesh war against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But we have to recognize that we've been made perfectly righteous once and for all when we believe in that cross and that death of Jesus Christ on that cross. When we put our faith in that, we've been made righteous forever. And having believed, we're still with the Spirit and our lives are changed. We're a new man or we're a new woman in Christ. And, 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 and so we're, we've been changed. And so, uh, I mean, you talk about great news. If if you believe, really believe that, if you really believe that, that uh, it's not to him who works, salvation is not to him who works, but him who believes, that's the one who's justified. That you're justified by your faith, not by your works. If you really truly believe that, that is really, really good news. That's really good news because... Because that tells me that it's God who worketh in me. I mean, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who worketh in me salvation. I can't do it. God doesn't, and all I have to do is trust him. Now, that's going to change my life, but it's God doing that work. And I'm going to tell you what, it's terrible news for those people who think somehow that they can add something to what Christ has done. You know people somebody was asking me about a particular denomination a couple of weeks ago if I thought the people in that denomination were saved I said they're not saved if they believe what that denomination teaches They might be in that denomination and be duped but if you believe somehow that you can sanctify yourself through some religious activity you're trampling on the blood of Jesus Christ and you're not saved If you're adding something to the gospel you're not saved That's why legalism is so dangerous and that's why legalists hate these kind of passages But it's there in the Bible. I didn't invent this. It's the way God set it up. And and the only way you understand that is when you really have a vision of God, like Abraham did. Because, friends, when you see God, when you see God and you look at yourself in the eyes of God, you realize there is no hope for you outside the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you can be saved. And Abraham saw God. That's the first step. You know, if you'll turn to God and you'll really really be willing to let God take your life, you're going to see God. You're going to see. You might not see a vision of God like Abraham had, but you're going to see God. You're going to see God in his word. You're going to see God acting in your life. You're You're going to feel God's presence in your own soul. That's what happens when you're truly born again. But that starts by you, 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 set in, you set in stone, I'm going to believe God. And I'm going to believe God, and I'm going to believe his word, and I'm going to get in his word and learn what he has to say. And when I believe God, then then just like Abraham, we're saved. That was it. Abraham didn't do anything. Actually, at this point other than that great victory he had, and who gave him that victory? God gave him that victory. But, I mean, this is the same guy that went down to Egypt and was ready to give his wife to Pharaoh. He was kind of a creep. And, he, and Lot, man, he's, at this point, he's still in Sodom with all those wicked people. He's becoming more and more wicked himself, and his family's going right down the tubes. And he's saved because he had faith. We don't know about Lot's experience with faith, but he had to have faith. He had believed God, probably because of his uncle Abraham, he had believed God, and it had been accounted to him for righteousness. I mean, what that means is that God put in Abraham's spiritual account the very righteousness of God. If you can ever get to the point where you see that, where you see that God has given you his own perfect righteousness, boy, it frees you up. It frees you from all the accusations of Satan, because you can laugh when Satan accuses of Satan. He says, you're a scumbag. You're worthless. Look at you. Look at what you just did. I know I did that, and I was wrong to do it, but I got news for you. I have the righteousness of God. I'm every bit as righteous as Jesus Christ. Take that, Satan. Take that. But all Abraham did was believe, but that wasn't as easy as you might think it would be. I mean, it was a tall order to believe all those things God had promised him. I mean, God had, and it really began with the fact that God had promised him a son. Him and Sarah were going to have a son. I mean, all, you're going to have as many descendants as the stars in the skies, and he didn't have one descendant. That was a pretty tall order to believe God, that God would give him a son at this point. And when he believed God, God's word, all of God's word, it was accounted to him for righteousness. And again, like I said before, in the next chapter, his faith's going to falter. Him and Sarah are going to try to take matters into their own hand, and they're going to, they're uh, Abraham's going to go in and have relations with his, his maid Hagar, and they're going to produce a son named Ishmael, which we all know about Ishmael. And, and so, So his faith is going to falter from time to time just like our faith falters from time to time. But friends, when you come to a point where you truly believe God and you believe all his word and you draw that line and you say, I'm going to believe the Lord no matter what comes my way, your faith's going to falter at times. But when you believe that, then your faith will be accounted to you for righteousness and you'll truly be saved and you will receive the spirit of God. And that's all Abraham had to do he believed the lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness you know what that tells me that tells me at this point god wasn't going to do that at this point i don't think but if god had said abraham you realize you're a sinner right yeah i realize i'm a sinner lord i'm going to take you forward in time all the way to the easter to easter all the way to good friday and i'm going to show you my son dying on a cross would you, believe, would you believe that he could pay for your sins? Certainly I believe that, Lord. You're going to give me a son. I believe all your words. I certainly can believe that. Do you believe that he could raise himself from the dead on the third day? Abraham, do you believe that? Abraham would have said, certainly, Lord, I believe that. That's why, see, he received the benefits of Easter even though Easter hadn't come because he was a man of faith. He believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Do you understand the lesson I'm trying to give you here? The lesson is that believing God and His Word, every word is essential to salvation. It's critical to salvation. It's everything. There is no Easter without real faith. No Easter at all without real faith. And for everybody with real faith, there comes an Easter if you have real faith. If you decide you're going to put your faith in God and trust God and believe every word of God, then you're going to have an Easter. What's the word Easter mean? Well, I know some people believe it, it's, it was a holiday that was taken from the pagan holiday that where they worshiped this goddess Easter. That's not what it is. I understand where the word came from. Some say it came from the German word uh, uh, which means dawn, Esther. Easter. Esther, the German word Esther means dawn. I think that might be one way it came from. But I personally think it came from the word Esther. The, the name Esther, which means morning star. Jesus is the resurrected star. Jesus is our resurrected star. And 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 that morning star will never dawn in your heart. There will be no Easter unless you have real faith. You have to have Real faith. Without real faith, again, there is no Easter. You've got to believe every word of the Bible. That's what it takes. Now, now That takes time. I understand that. I mean, I remember when, when I got saved, one of the things I knew the day that I walked away from my salvation experience, I knew that the word of God, every word of this was true. I don't know how I knew that. I do know how I knew that. I knew it by the Spirit of God. But I got to reading that, and I said, wait a minute, how can a God who tells the Israelites to kill every man, woman, and child be the same God that would hang on a cross for every man, woman, and child? And it took some time to reconcile that, and it's going to take some time to reconcile that, but you know what, I believed it. I still believed it. I I knew I had to reconcile it. I mean, how could God create the heavens and the earth in seven days? I mean, when everybody else is saying it, that's impossible, the earth is billions and billions of years old, how, how can I reconcile that? It took some time, but I later on, I, I believed it. I just said, I'm going to believe it. I believed it because God gave me the spirit to believe it. Well, if, let me, here's a question. If somebody truly believes in Easter, doesn't that mean that they're saved even if they don't believe the rest of the Bible? Look, I'm not anybody's judge. I'm not God. But you want my answer to that question? The answer, I don't think so. I don't think you can, I don't think you can just believe the Easter story and, and not believe the rest of the word of God. I just, don't, I just don't think so. Because I believe that without real faith in all of God's word, there is no Easter that's the way it's always been. It was. That's the way it was all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham believed, and that's the way it was in when the disciples believed in the New Testament. That's the way it is now. It's the way it's always been. You remember the story in Exodus. I, I'm, I mean, you remember as part of the Exodus, Exodus, the story's actually recorded in numbers, but you remember as the Israelites had exited Egypt and they were out in the wilderness, and they had been in the wilderness, they... For, for years, and they were getting fed up with it. I think they were fed up with it, with, with it the first day they went out, but, but after 20 or 30 years, they were really fed up with it. And they began to mumble and grumble against the Lord. And the Lord did something that, man, it makes you think there's an Old Testament God and, not, and it's different from the New Testament God. But you know what he did? He sent snakes. Now, I can't imagine anything worse than that. He sent snakes into the camp and they bit these Israelites and many of them were dying. And they came to Moses. They said, Moses, we're sorry. We, we mumbled and grumbled against the Lord. Please help us. Please plead our case with the Lord. And, and Moses did that. He got before the Lord like he always did. He fell on his face. He got before the Lord. And he said, Lord, can you do something about all these snakes killing all the people in Israel? And the Lord says, I'm going to tell you what it, you got to do. You know, it, the Israelites' problem is that they don't believe in me? They don't believe. That's their problem. That's why they didn't. Uh, that's why they did go into the promised land. When I told them to go into the promised land, because they didn't believe. Well, I'm going to give them something they can believe. But I tell you what, I want you to do. I want you to take a bronze serpent, and I want you to hang it on a pole, much like the picture you see on the cover of your bulletins today. And Moses made the bronze serpent. And he made the pole, and the Lord told him that whoever looks upon that pole will be healed of the poison of that snake bite. Now, it's one thing to believe, if you put yourself in the shoes of these Israelites, it's one thing to believe that there was a bronze serpent on a pole, because you could see the bronze serpent on the pole. That was easy to believe. But it was another thing, to believe that looking at that bronze serpent on that pole, gazing at that bronze serpent on that pole, would heal them from the poison of their snake bites. That took what? It took faith. And I'm sure there were a lot of Israelites who got bit by snakes who said, I'm not going to sit there and look at a snake on a pole and think that somehow God's going to heal me or heal my children of these snake bites. And what happened to them? They died. Only those who had the faith to look at that pole and look at that snake on that pole were saved from death. You see the picture that God painted in the Houston, the snake on the pole. I mean, here's the picture. The whole human race, much like that video we looked at, In that illustration, the whole human race has been put in a cage. They're chained up in a cage. But in this illustration, they've been bitten by the serpent. And they're infected with the venom of sin. And it's killing them. It's killing them. But there's a cure. And what's the cure? It's Easter. But there's no Easter without faith. That's why... Jesus used this very illustration, and he told Nicodemus in John 3, 14 and 15. Let me read. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. What did did it mean to, to believe in him? It means to gaze on that cross, to recognize the fact that when Jesus is on that cross, my sin is on him. And he's dying to to take the punishment that I should have taken for my sin. And I've got to believe that that's what's happening on that cross. And, And if I believe that, then I shall not perish, but I will have eternal life. Now listen to me very carefully. It is one thing to believe that there is a Christ hanging on a cross. Most people believe, if you ask in America, you can ask Muslims, did Jesus die on a cross other than the Muslims, they will tell you yes. I believe he died on a cross. He died on a cross for my sin. I I tell you, most Americans, if you ask them if they believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, they will tell you I believe Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. But listen to me. It's It's one thing to believe that, but it's another thing to believe that looking on that cross, that gazing at Jesus on that cross will heal me from my sin. And that his resurrected life is what sanctifies me and eventually glorifies me and makes me fit for heaven. It's his resurrected life that gives me the righteousness of God. Now, I've got to believe that to be saved. You can't just believe that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead and be saved. And that's the gospel that goes out all over. It's like the illustration we looked at earlier. Christ just died. He died for me to save me, and now I'm set free, and I'm going to go right on doing tomorrow what I did today. That is not the Easter story. The Easter story is that Christ paid for my sins and I believe that I gaze on him and I see my sins being paid for. Then I see him come up out of that grave and I am buried with him and I am raised with him to new life. That's the Easter story. And that's a a tall order to believe that, to really believe that. That's why there are so many legalistic religions today that want to add to that. In other words, if you don't take communion in a certain way, then you, you, you're not sanctified, you're not glorified, you don't have the righteousness of God. If you don't confess to some priest or something, you don't have the righteousness of God. If you don't pay some kind of penance, you don't have the righteousness of God. There is nothing that can save you and give you the righteousness of God but the, looking at Christ and his shed blood being paid for your sins. And his resurrected life as sanctifying you and glorifying you forever. And if you don't want to believe that, See, people say, that, "How can that happen?" I mean, I, I, I can't believe that. And then some people say they believe that, but man, that's a tall. To really believe that, you got to get to the point where you really believe it. You got, you got to be broken of your. You got to be broken in this life. Nobody gets saved until they're really broken. Until they really realize that? Hey, I, I'm, I'm, as wretched as anybody on this earth. And I deserve eternal death. And there's only one thing that can save me from eternal death, and that's to look at the snake on the pole, the serpent on the pole, to look at my sin on the pole, to look at, look at the thing that bit me on the pole and to see that Jesus is taking my sin, and he's dying for my sin. And whosoever believeth in that shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's how we're sanctified and cured. We look to the cross and the resurrection Of Jesus Christ. And we truly believe. How can you be sure. If you. Really have the faith. To be saved. I'll tell you how. By what you believe about the rest of this word. That's how you can tell if your faith is real or not. See. How can somebody say. They don't believe in a literal seven-day creation they don't believe in a worldwide flood they don't believe that Jonah was really swallowed by a fish and lived to tell about it they don't believe in the virgin birth they don't believe the story in numbers we just looked at that if hey these people just looked at a pole and they were healed of their snake bite. how can you how can you uh, say that you believe you you don't believe those things yet you believe that by looking at Christ on a cross and and appropriating his resurrected life, and receiving his resurrected life, you can be saved, and sanctified, and glorified. I mean, it just doesn't gel. I mean, let me, I mean, if, if God lied about the creation, the seven-day creation, then what tells you he didn't lie about the, the story of Easter? I mean, if he's a liar, he's a liar. If any of this word's a lie, all of it's a lie. Or all of it could be a lie. I mean, if, let me ask you this. What's harder? What's harder? To create the universe in seven days or to take a wretch like me and create a new perfect man who can live forever as a son of God? What's easier? Hey, with man, they're both. Equally impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And only when we make a decision like Abraham to truly believe the word of God, the promises of God, are we saved. And having believed, we receive the spirit of God. And when you have the spirit of God, you have no problem believing the rest of the word of God. That's that's why I say I have problems with people who don't believe the rest of the word of God. I mean, believing in the virgin birth doesn't save you. But if you don't believe in the virgin birth, I don't believe you're saved. I don't believe. I'm telling you, I don't believe you're saved. And I'm not saying that to judge you. I'm saying that to scare you to get where you, to make a decision where you believe these things, so you do receive the Spirit of God and you can believe it. because if you have the Spirit of God, then you believe the Word of God. Just the way it works. So. Here's the question for Easter, this Easter Sunday. Question everybody in this room needs to ask themselves Have you really looked at yourself to come to a point where you realize that God is righteous and you are not? And there's nothing you can do about your sin and your unrighteous state. And that you will never see God. You will never enter heaven without perfect righteousness. Any other gospel is not the gospel. It's not Easter. And then once you come to that point or came to that point, then have you gazed upon that cross and seen the serpent on the cross, your sin on the cross, the poison on the cross being laid out on Jesus, meted out on Him, the God of all glory dying for you. Have you really reached that point? I'll tell you how you know you reached that point when you quit judging other people. Because you really understand how wretched you are, and, 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 and you're no different from the the bum on the street outside that Grace outside the righteousness of God. And when you believed, when you looked on that cross and you believed, you were sealed with the Spirit. And now you believe the whole word of God. If not, you haven't reached that point. Remember this, I'll leave you with this. Without real faith in the promises of God, there is no Easter. You understand me? For you, there's no Easter. Humble yourself before the Lord, give your life to the Lord. This Easter Sunday it will be the greatest day of your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the Easter story right here in Genesis chapter 15. We thank you for for (laughs) the price you paid, Lord. Talk about being our exceedingly great reward. I mean, here we were, dying, going our way, headed for hell. And you came to this earth emptied yourself of your glory and hung on that cross and shed your blood and had your body broken so that we could have the very righteousness of God. Your righteousness. The righteousness that makes us fit for a relationship with you. The righteousness that makes us fit for eternal life. Lord, we're so blessed. Lord, you are our shield and you are our exceedingly great reward. We praise you through the name of Jesus Christ I pray. Amen.